2: It's Monday, October 23rd, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
0: And
3: I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
2: You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app.
3: Inquiring Minds listeners probably know that I work at the University of California, San Francisco, and one of the programs I run is I put on a giant party for science enthusiasts across the Bay Area that I like to call the Bay Area Science Festival. I mostly like to call it that because that's its actual name. Yeah, it's a good name. (laughs) (laughs) But it's basically two weeks of uh, events across the area that put you in direct contact with scientists and engineers, ranging from hands-on days for families that are free to more ridiculous things in the evening, let's just say. And our guest this week is actually putting on an event during the Science Festival.
2: Yeah, and I actually participated in one of his events.
3: You participated in this event. So (laughs) our guest this week is Zach Wienersmith, who is the artist behind Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal, one of the more successful web comics out there. And he started an event years ago called BaFest, the Festival of Bad Ad-Hoc Hypotheses, where scientists get up on stage and give a total BS theory for anything they'd like. And Indre, you submitted one one year. I I convinced you, I think. (laughs) Yes. What was your theory? I don't remember. Mine
2: mine was all about how um, handshakes are what make people uh, have more babies. <laughs> or something like that it My was favorite.
3: something weird last year's was so brilliant last year's winner was so brilliant it was uh controlling invasive uh species in Florida by pairing up invasive species and elderly uh, people in Florida to minimize healthcare costs. And it was all about how pythons and old people need to work together and be be paired up. It was one of the funnier things I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, my favorite part of doing one of those talks though was finding some awesome charts online and, you know, essentially doing all the things that a scientist you're not supposed to do, which is cherry picking and p-hacking and essentially using someone else's evidence to back up a completely outrageous hypothesis.
3: It's pretty fun. This year's uh Fest is is next Friday and the judges are is where where it's at. We have past Inquiring Minds guest Katie Mack as awesome. as an as astrophysicist. There we have Maggie kurth Baker from Five Thirty Eight. Carl Zimmer is one of the judges from the New York Times, and um, Gail Petrelli, who is uh, a ecologist at UC Davis that makes robotic sage grouses to study their mating habits. That's a phrase I know now because of Um It's an awesome event, but moreover, there's tons of events happening. So if you happen to be in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out bayareascience.org. I'm doing the most ridiculous science event I've ever done in my life. Next Sunday on October 29th. You want to know what it is? Yeah, what is it? Uh, So, we've decided to partner with an underground wrestling event uh, called Hood Slam, and we're going to settle old scientific beefs in the squared circle. So, Rosalind Franklin will be wrestling Watson and Crick, and Neil Tyson's going to be wrestling Bill Nye, and uh, Tesla versus Edison, and a few other surprises. So, wrestling and science.
2: Yeah. And uh, tonight, actually, October 23rd, I'm interviewing Atul Gawande for uh, City Arts and Lectures, which I'm totally excited about. You can't come. Unfortunately, it's all sold out. But if you listen to NPR, it's often aired. it often airs on uh, your local radio station a couple months from now. So I'll let you know when that happens. Um, in the meantime, if you want to tweet me with awesome questions for Atul Gawande, please do so.
3: How do you fix our healthcare
2: system? Yeah. Um... yeah. How do you make us not die? The, the book... <laughs> we're talking about is called being mortal and i just want to
3: be like really (laughs) oh no uh but back to this week's guest zach wienersmith uh he and his wife kelly wienersmith who is a parasitologist uh, at rice university co-wrote a book called soonish 10 emerging technologies that will improve and or ruin everything that i think the ruin is is zach's cynicism coming through and it's sort of this great journey through 10 different technologies that we've heard a lot about we've even covered on this show that are becoming reality, but they take a little bit more of a critical take and do a lot more math about how realistic they are, from space elevators to asteroid mining to brain-computer interfaces, one of your favorite topics. (laughs) Uh, It's a really enjoyable, lighthearted read. So if you like your pop science book with some uh, web comics embedded in it, this is the book for you. With that, we'll take a short break and be back with my interview with Zach Wienersmith.
2: This episode is sponsored by Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. Looking for fun trivia to impress your family and friends this holiday season? Look no further. Since 1987, Portable Press has provided facts and trivia to those who crave it with the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. With over 15 million books sold, this is the longest running, most popular series of its kind. What's the appeal? Just flip through any one of the books and choose from a whole host of topics, including unknown origins, forgotten history, strange news, pop science, dumb crooks, wordplay, and much, much more. Not only will you be entertained, but you'll know a whole lot more about the world around you. This year, they are celebrating 30 years of bringing trivia to the masses, and they are not slowing down yet. Want a dose of trivia? Go to PortablePress.com Minds to download a 20-page free sample of the new 30th anniversary title, Uncle John's Old Faithful Bathroom Reader. Or follow them on social media at Portable Press for more trivia and frequent book giveaways.
3: Zach Wienersmith, welcome back to Inquiring Minds.
1: It's it's pretty good to be here.
3: Well, the last time you were here, you talked to Indre, and you mostly talked about catapulting babies. Yes. And this is pre you actually having babies, mm-hmm. I believe. And now you have two children of your own. So how has the catapulting gone?
1: I'm I'm more convinced than ever that it would work, uh, but I haven't I haven't got the opportunity yet. It's uh I need to wait for Kelly works from home, right? So <laughs>
3: <laughs> last time Zach was on for listeners that don't remember he was talking about Bafest his his big celebration of of terrible hypotheses that uh, scientists and others participate in. It was great. But this time he's back to talk about the near future, some technological developments that are going to ruin our life or make them better. I think I had that backwards. I think the title of the book is The Other Way Around. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: uh, improve and or ruin everything.
3: So do you have an optimistic take? Uh,
1: I like to say, well, in some cases, I I like to say we are skeptical optimists, uh, which is to say, like, we would like most of this stuff to happen. Some would be a little ominous, but, uh, but mostly we'd like it to happen. But there, the book is kind of about understanding all the ways it might not, or if it did, it would be awful. Um, but with a sort of, I hope, an optimistic bent towards it happening at some point.
3: We're not going to go through all 10. Mm-hmm. It's, this is a wonderfully, surprisingly dense read. Like you, mm-hmm. you really delve into the details with your co-author, your wife, Kelly Smith. But I want to touch upon a few. Yeah. That are sort of my favorites. Like yeah. this idea that space can be for everybody. It seems like so many billionaires keep telling us about how we need to go to space, but they are billionaires. So it doesn't feel <laughs> yeah. like the price tag that it actually takes to get to space is, is accessible to us. And that's where you really start an economic argument about getting a space. Yeah.
1: Yeah, actually, a, d- a decent amount of the book, because we're trying to describe limitations, comes down to economics, which is like the dream crusher. Um, for a lot of this technology. So in, in terms of going to space, um, the main paradigm we have is you launch a rocket to space. Well, I shouldn't say the main, it's the only way we have to do it. Um, and the problem with doing that is you dump the rocket, uh, you lose the rocket. And and if you don't know, if you look at a rocket, it's about 80% fuel by mass and about sixteen and a half percent the rocket. And so uh, just to go to low Earth orbit, um, you're talking about, about 3.5% of your rocket actually going to space. So the way we say it in the book, what happens is it would be like if you wanted to go from New York to L.A. and instead of being able to just do that, what you would have to do is fly over L.A., jump out of the plane, parachute down, and then the whole machine, the the, the plane would crash into the ocean and explode. Um, and so, I, I, roughly speaking, it would cost a million dollars a person or something. You probably wouldn't do it too much, um, but that's essentially what we have for rockets.
3: And even with uh, some of the developments about reusable rocket shells, mm-hmm. we're still not bringing down the price that significantly.
1: No, and, and and so so for reference, so SpaceX is the only company that can do that. Um, well, the only entity that can do it actually. That, that we yeah.
3: know about.
1: Well, yeah, all right, yeah. The, the 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 secret conspiracy, the new world order, can do it, but. Well, I wasn't supposed to tell you about that. But uh, but yeah, so um, what SpaceX does, so they have a, a reusable rocket, but one, it only... La- I shouldn't say only, like it's awesome, but it lands the first booster stage. So if you don't know, a rocket that goes to low Earth orbit or wherever is usually made of basically three rockets stacked on top of each other. And the reason you do that is because one you know, you're mostly fuel, so once you use up a ton of fuel you're carrying dead weight if you don't dump part of the rocket. So what you do is you dump the first stage, and then you go on the second stage, you dump that, and then you go on the last little bit. Um, what they've done is that first stage, which is the biggest stage, lands on a barge, and then they get to reuse it. Um, so uh, so that's really exciting. That um, I think Elon Musk said they could get the price down um, by like 90%, but you have to that multiply seems optimistic. that by. Yeah, there's, there's, there's an Elon multiplicative factor you need to enter into that. But But... Um, it's not too crazy because the, the rocket itself, the machine, is the expensive part, right? The fuel is almost nothing compared to the overall cost. It's like probably something like 1% of the cost, like like an airplane, right? The expensive thing is the airplane, not the, the airplane fuel.
3: But we're still, you know, wasting certain, wasting, quote-unquote, resources to to get up there. Aren't there other options out there? I mean, I've long heard about the space elevator.
1: Yeah, so the space elevator is the coolest go to space idea um the problem what we call in the book the the problem is the middle part uh the uh, hundred thousand kilometer cable um so for people who don't know a space elevator what you should visualize is something that looks like an oil rig out at sea in the middle of the ocean and then up from it extends this thin thing you almost can't see at a distance which is this thin cable or maybe a ribbon shaped thing that goes up through the clouds all the way to space it goes way 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 out uh 62,000 miles, for in, in, in the classic version of it, uh, and then attaches to probably an asteroid, some heavy object in space that acts as a counterweight. Um, and it, without getting into the physics, it's kind of like when you're spinning a, a sling around. It's way easier to spin it if there's a rock on the other end. Um, and, and you need to get it just right um, so that the mass, um, the, the center of mass is in geosynchronous orbit. And all that means is that you don't want the cable to wind around the Earth like it's a you know thread on a spindle because... That'll be sad, um but anyway so uh um i I don't know how how thick I should get in on why this is valuable, but uh...
3: do it i I have to admit like the. The initial – when I heard, first heard about Space Elevator, I was a kid and reading yeah. some science fiction, and I always had in my mind the view of an escalator. I know it says elevator, but I had, like, an <laughs> escalator from the far side picture of, like, ascending to heaven <laughs> is what it was. But when you get down into the physics, it gets really complicated really quickly. Yeah. I think um, – uh, we had Andy Weir on the podcast uh, a couple years ago before the uh, before the Martian movie came out, and he talked about some of the math off air um, getting really complicated and just sort of mm-hmm. not being able to hold its own integrity,
1: right? So I, the way I, – I don't think we use this in the book, but the, the way to think about that um, is like imagine you are on top of a cliff and your friend falls off, but you've got a rope holding them, right? Mm-hmm. So the thing you mostly care about at that point is how much your friend weighs. Like whether they've been on a diet lately is very important to you because mostly you're holding your friend. But if the cliff is, say, 1,000 miles deep – the main weight, and I feel, to me, this is very counterintuitive because somehow in my head a rope weighs literally nothing, right? <laughs> but actually, a 1,000 miles deep, if you assume, like, say, every 10 feet of cable or of rope is a pound, a 1,000 miles deep, you've got, uh, you know, 500,000 pounds of rope. And so you don't care at all about what your friend weighs. You care about the cable holding itself up. And, and, and of course, it's going to snap itself apart because, you know, it's not going to be designed to hold 500,000 pounds. And this is the problem with the space elevator. Um, so what you need for a space elevator is what's called specific strength, um, yeah which just means, um, uh, without getting too physicsy, essentially it means you need a material that's super lightweight and super strong. We, we, you want Superman's hair, right, from the movies. Uh, and it turns out it's really hard to make Superman's hair. Um, but there is a substance called carbon nanotubes that might maybe possibly do it, uh, but we're not very good at making carbon nanotubes.
3: Uh. Not at that kind of scale. I mean, right. like, there's definitely been carbon nanotubes made, but we're using them on a, on a microscopic amount. Of
1: I, I, exactly. Well, the, yeah, the big issue is what you need really is to have one nanotube be a hundred thousand kilometers long. Instead <laughs> of
3: like layers of nanotubes, which right. is generally what we see uh, exactly. being created in lab settings right now yeah. for a different amount of strength. We're not done with space though. So, okay, yes. I can't have a space elevator because <laughs> physics. Um, so physics ruined that one. We have some hope about just launching us water bags up into space with, uh, with reusable rockets bringing down some cost. Yeah. But once we're up there, we're not done because it, it's expensive to keep sending stuff up. So we have to get stuff up there like water yeah. and fuel sources.
1: So, yeah, you're leading me into asteroid mining, I take it, is is where this is going. That's is, is what that, professional right, yeah. interviewers do. <laughs>
3: they create transitions for you to talk about, and then you're not supposed to mention yeah, the transition back just, to me. I should
1: have gone into some other topic completely. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you don't interview yeah. your friends. Um, yeah, asteroid mining was a surprising topic. So, um, we thought the whole idea, and, and for some people this is the idea, but it didn't seem to us to be super plausible the, uh, to go to space to get stuff to bring home. And, and this kind of comes down to economics because the question is not whether there's valuable stuff in space because of course there is. It's, it's a question of whether you'd be better off digging on Earth. Um, so you get, these, um, you get these sort of silly um, news things that are like, you know, there's $100 trillion worth of X in the asteroid belt. But you could literally say that about Earth. You could be like, did you know there's $50 billion trillion worth of stuff in the core of the Earth? And it's like, yeah, but it's going to cost more than that to go get it. So, so that probably that's implausible that we're going to go to space. They're they're like, if there was an asteroid made of gold or something, maybe. And there's not. There's just not. Um, So even if space were cheap, it'd probably be pretty implausible. Plus, there's a geopolitical concern, which is like, how do you feel about some other country or even the country at the moment bringing back uh, like a huge hunk of metal to land on Earth, uh, uh, with with, with it in mind that, that if it landed in the wrong place. At high speed, that's like setting off a nuclear bomb. Um,
3: Wait, but, so you don't see any plausibility to asteroid mining, even for if we keep it in space and do the right. mining up there. That's that's the one
1: plausible idea, which is you, you if you can refine it in space. The, the way we describe it is, it's sort of like. It, like there's a junkyard in space there's like leftover planet chunks and so given the cost even with a spa- space elevator of putting stuff in space if you consider you have this asteroid belt it's already in microgravity right so so for for listeners who don't know or haven't thought about it one one thing we mentioned in the book is from a purely energetic standpoint from the amount of energy it takes to boost something it's easier to get something from one of the moons of mars to Earth than from the moon of Earth to Earth, right? And that's because the moons of Mars are these little, if you've seen them, they look like potatoes because they can't even hold themselves into spheres. They're very small. I think we calculated you could, if it, if you could hold it to the asteroid, you could drive a motorcycle off it and just fly off into space. Um, so I think Mars might pull you in. We didn't calculate too hard. But, but in terms of its escape velocity, you could... You could motorcycle off. So the point being that once you're in open space, it's easy to move around. It, it costs no energy other than the initial energy you need to get up to speed. So uh, there's like, a, um, like I think something like a third of a planet worth of junk, which includes things like iron silicates, which you can use to make dirt, which is valuable if you want to eat food, um, water, oxygen, nitrogen, um, all sorts of things you might want if you were building a spaceship or a settlement. I-
3: if you just need a fuel source too, on some level, yes, right? So
1: that's, yeah, I mean you've got you've got um, oxygen you could burn. There's, there's um, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of stuff. Yeah,
3: I, I'm also curious about power generation in space because we can't uh, just simply keep shuttling fuel up there. Even if you're able to create fuel up in mm-hmm. space, you have to be able to have a power source to help you mi- mine that. And yeah. so the ISS is mostly powered by solar arrays. Right. Why don't we just send more of that up there?
1: Yeah, so we, we we do we talk in the graveyard of the book we call it the graveyard of lost chapters or, or topics we explored somewhat in depth and then decided to junk. Um, so we um, we talked about this idea of space-based space, solar. So here, here's the the optimistic look at it, which is one book we read calculated that. Per area, you could get something like forty times more power because you have no weather, no day night cycle, you can move closer to the sun there 's all sorts of reasons so that's it 's like that 's a lot of power to work with forty forty times so it 's so, essentially free yeah well yeah, yeah. once it 's up there, kind of sort of but so the problem becomes so if it 's forty times better, that means you can do forty times the cost of a solar panel on earth and come out okay, but we calculated i think pretty generously and, and found it was probably not worth it, and in fairness. A lot of the books, um, a lot of the proposals for space-based space, solar came out, say, 10 years ago. And the cost of solar has, like, dropped drastically in the last 10 years. So the the conclusion we basically came to is, is for the foreseeable future and maybe forever, uh, you'll be better off putting 40 panels in Arizona or the Sahara or somewhere than putting it in space. Because you also have to consider, like, in, in Arizona, if you want, like, your solar panels washed, you get, like, Bob the intern and say, go wash my panels, you know, in space. Uh, you probably need robots. I mean, you could, I suppose, get an astronaut to do it, but that's a lot of training to wash windows. Essentially, um, yeah.
3: I guess I don't think about how they maintain the solar arrays on the ISS. But is that a regular thing that they have to do?
1: You know, I, I actually don't know. In the case of the ISS, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm sure you know. I'm sure they're robust because up there, you're, you're going to be getting ionized ionizing radiation, you're going to get micrometeorites and stuff whacking it. So you might just accept some efficiency loss over time. You'd have to anyway, because that's the way solar panels are. But I actually don't know uh, how they do it there.
3: Oh, that's right. fun. You, you know, we you keep s- uh, suggesting, you know, we did the math, we we calculated yeah. X. Um, like, take us in for a second, you know, we'll, we'll pause and, and delve into some of the methods behind the madness of this book. Like, did you literally sit down and like, just do the math of these crazy ideas. Like, how did all of this form?
1: Yeah, so in, I mean, I should say it's fairly straightforward math. It's like cost y stuff. But um, <laughs> no,
3: but how do you get to the point where, you're like, what if we had a motorcycle on demos? <laughs> what would happen?
1: Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, so we're one. You know, so we we were we're not experts in these topics. So we just do what math we know how to do. So like calculating whether you can zoom off demos is pretty pretty easy, because you can look up the escape velocity. That means, in this case, because there's no atmosphere or anything, you just have to know what velocity you need to hit to escape. Um, so I think, I, I, I want to say on, on one of the moons of Mars, I forget which, it's 25 miles per hour. Hence, for sure, a motorcycle will get you off. Mind you, it's a little trickier, because the motorcycle also can't, like, get any traction going. Exactly. He, right? But, like...
3: We'll, um, we'll, we'll allow you moon tires. Yeah,
1: moon tires. Some sort of moon tire gripper system. But... Um, But, yeah, I mean, so we also – we pretty much exclusively use primary sources for everything because I I think a lot of pop science books – I don't want to throw shade on anyone, but a lot of pop science books use as their sources pop science articles, which to me it's like making a copy of a copy. Like you're going to lose some um, truth with each copy. We tried to exclusively use – almost exclusively use primary sources. And then for everything, literally everything in the book, we had some expert look – Look it over. So, for instance, we have a section on um, whether you'd be puking if you went up uh, the space elevator because it's it's a little counterintuitive, right? Because you you can be accelerating up. Oh, then, because uh, you're
3: yeah, you're spinning and flying and right, well, like and your getting, gravity is shifting. Right, too.
1: your gravity is getting lower and lower and lower as you go out. So it's it's not in a sense dissimilar from a roller coaster. Um, but, but, on the other hand you can have the thing you 're going up and accelerating to compensate for it, so it turns out it 's not too bad at a thing you, you might puke right at the top for a while i don 't know uh, <laughs> depends on what your plan is I guess but um.
3: so often so oftentimes you talk to an expert, but then it sounds like you also did your own sort of checking of some of some yeah. of that that information uh a- against like your ability to do some of the, some of the math yourself mm-hmm. that Where do you, like, most of the experts, these are, you know, real, narrow, depth experts that you're talking to, very narrow subject matter experts. Did you get a sense that they had knowledge of these other areas? Was there sort of this, because you essentially wrote a book that's cross-knowledge across a lot of different Mm -hmm. domains. And we see very few generalists like that in science these days.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, some fields are kind of naturally multidisciplinary i think of brain computer interfaces kind of that way um because you know like what, like one guy we talked to Eric Luthart, is he's just cooler than regular people he's like a neurosurgeon like when we we were interviewing cuz he's also a BCI guy a brain computer interface guy and we wanted to interview him but we had to talk to his secretary and she was like i, I think i forgot what it was we had an interview set up and then he he couldn't cuz he was doing like like surgery on someone's brain suddenly and and he's just seems fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like okay, I guess I guess I'll let that slide. Uh I won't make you come in or I guess he could have done both at the same time. That would have been cool. Um but yeah, um there there isn't a lot of cross-disciplinary stuff I'm trying to think um
3: I only ask because this idea of, like, the, the person that's thinking about the space elevator probably mm. has something meaningful to say about brain-computer interfaces, too. It's just those two never collide.
1: Yeah, that's, that's probably Well, it's, it's the way science is these days. Uh, uh, maybe it's always been that way, but th- there is a lot of siloing. Um, I, I, part, part of the appeal for us of, of doing 10 different things, and for that matter, doing BaFest is, is we get a bunch of people from different universes um, kind of together, uh, which is which is fun for us anyway.
3: I do want to talk about brain-computer interfaces since you brought it up. Uh, partially, I was at an event last night, and um, this isn't quite a brain-computer interface. It's more about human augmentation. But uh, one of the speakers at this event last night was a neurosurgeon, and... and. Um, He's like, yeah, my wife and I got this thing implanted in our hand. And I was like, what do you like? At first, of all, I was like all creeped out about it for yeah, a second yeah, yeah. because there's this thing like slightly <laughs> moving in between his thumb and, and index finger underneath the skin. I'm like, what is that? He's like, it's an RFID chip. And like and his wife starts talking about how now she was able to program it to be her badge at work and so she just swipes it her hand in front of doors (laughs) to open things and it brought up this idea like um uh i've had friends write about a whole slew of people doing human augmentation and this merge of technology and biology yeah um it is sort of fascinating so i'm i'm real curious what you found when you started to delve into brain computer interfaces which is this broad field
1: yeah very very broad field but um uh, the it most of it's pretty rudimentary um uh but there is a lot of neat stuff it's just it's very hard i'm sure this was a problem with the r f i d chip there's there's a fundamental problem with putting stuff in the human body, which is like the human body's not designed for it, it doesn't right? like foreign stuff no in it. it doesn't so for example, one of the most invasive ways to do what we we sort of cutely call brain reading um is you can use what's called um i think it's called a michigan array it's it's in the book but it, it, if you want to visualize it imagine like um like uh, just uh, a whole lot of like one of those boards of nails that like you'd have at a, a circus act or something. Only it goes on into your brain, um, and the the reason you do this, is you get really good data. There are electrodes on the end of the needles. You get very good information. Um, but there there are two problems. One, if you imagine you stuck one of those in Jello, and then you had to carry it around all day, you know, you you could sort of visualize what happens. Um, and you know, it's it's embarrassing. Let's say if you get an inflamed, infected brain, sure. you know you. Yeah. Embarrassing. Yeah. That's your word yeah. to describe yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't want your friends to find out. And uh, no, but um, but so uh, the other down... Like, in addition to the, like, obvious downside of an, an immune response to needles in your brain, um, the immune response affects the signal negatively. Um, so after it's in there for a while, it stops working. So you've, you've gone to all the trouble of putting an array of spikes in your brain, and then it stops working after a few months. Um, and so, you know, there the idea that at some point you would get this done on a permanent basis for some reason is, it, it, it's, it's surely going to be possible, but uh, it's going to take a lot of work.
3: But that's only one form of an interface where yes. there's something implanted in you. There's a lot of other interfaces that are a little bit different. What yeah. Give us an, like, an optimistic take of a brain-computer interface that you th- saw as having some potential.
1: Yeah. Um, well, just as a little background there, so there's the, the, Unfortunately, there's kind of a trade off between quality and invasiveness so so you can get you can get an e e g cap which's been around since the seventies and there's there's better better data analysis now, but it's still you know, you have if you want to visualize like a shower cap with electrodes all over. It's what you think of when you think like electroshock therapy or something. But it's just detecting brain signals, and so you can already use this, and it's cool. And but it, it's very aggregate. Um, it has to be like fifty thousand neurons doing something together. Um, so the the way I like to explain it is, it's like if you're aliens, you wanted to make observations of say San Francisco, you would it would be like you could only see sporting events or mass protests or you know, and, and then you had to make a judgment based on that. So you can do stuff like, are you in a good mood? or are you thinking about moving your arm or something like like useful stuff but not like super specific stuff whereas in principle with the um the more invasive like needle in the brain or needle in the skull type stuff um you can do a lot more interesting work um in terms of actually using it um I think the most plausible one, and this is a total guess. I, I'm not. I'm not very good at speculation, but uh, the, is
3: you wrote a book called Soonish. I know, and I know, you're well, not good at speculation.
1: <laughs> well, well, we we try not. To, I, I'm using speculation, I guess, negatively. I'm like, we don't do a lot of like future casting. We do a sort of like if a then b type of future yeah, casting. Got it. Like, yeah, I'm I'm trying to be. I, we're not like futurologists. I don't want to go down that universe. I have no no offense to futurologists, but it's not what we're trying to do. Um, but yeah, so. there there are a lot of ways you could quote unquote non-invasively like electroshock part of the part of the brain. Um, And that sounds maybe a little terrifying, but so like um, it's actually a good example of how things like this can be really good and really bad. And it's hard to say what will happen. So In in principle, one thing you could do is the computer could detect whether you're, like, drifting in focus and then bring you back to focus. So the nice version of that is suppose you're driving a train um, or even a car or what have you. you have a machine that can do that, you'd you'd probably want that. That's nice. That's great. You'd probably love that for your teenager, um, like, if they're out late driving or something. But imagine that same technology being used on, like, workers, right? So now you're in a situation where you know your your coworker is willing to wear the helmet so that the company can detect when he's you know using reddit or something and and shock him back <laughs> into focus um and but maybe you're not but guess who's getting the promotion then you know um so the,
3: uh, so there's some morality at play is big what you're time, suggesting yeah
1: yeah well there's also just sort of personal autonomy stuff which is like um you know once your brain can interface with a computer like you you've lost a huge amount of privacy. Like the, the one, like the one privacy you feel like you'll always have is you can, you, can, you can think the most disgusting, vile thoughts in your own head and no one will ever find out. You know what I mean? Not that I do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I saw you nodding. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but this is like the, the last permanently private place is your own brain. It's where you can say whatever you want as long as it's to yourself. Um, and the moment you, you have an interface between that and anything outside your skull,
3: it's gone. Um, Oh, that's fascinating because every conversation about this is really in the lens of augmentation mm -hmm. or enhanced productivity. But to think about it from a privacy perspective.
1: Yeah, and what's really eerie, yeah, so one thing I think about is like, so I use Facebook, but I'm like I'm 35, so I'm I, I I'm not like a native Facebook person. I'm I'm almost not even a native internet person. Like the internet didn't come along till I was like 10, so I didn't like it's not like the backdrop of my life. But so I'm already having that thing where I see people using Facebooks in ways that like weird me out, like mm-hmm. bearing way too much information. And then for my parents, the, it's like bizarre to them, like the people, like even the idea, that, like that you would go on Facebook and say I'm feeling depressed to them. That's like it's like crazy. Like when you're depressed, you call your friend. You don't go to like your thousand casual acquaintances and say, I'm sad. But like, to me, that seems normal. But mm-hmm. that's, I grew up with that to an extent. And and so what's what's weird to me is I feel like if someone came to you or me and said, hey, we can screw a thing into your skull and it's going to output your mood and it's going to output like things you're thinking about or whatever, we'd say, no, that's just, that's too violative of my sense of self. But like, I suppose two, three generations hence, There's never, like it might just be, totally normal to them
3: so i that brings me to a a great sort of last question Mm -hmm. which is how uh, and you wrote a book called soonish about these emerging technologies and in some way you took this you know deeply scientific rigorous look at at how it's going to impact society but how much of this is generational like if we were here five years from now Mm -hmm. um would it be in it viewed in a totally different lens because of of how you were raised or the cultural identity that you even have.
1: Yeah. So I think that's especially true with BCIs. Uh, There's a chapter we do on um, organ printing, which, which, so like we're totally pro organ printing. It's very hard to be anti organ printing on any basis because there are people dying of not having organs. And so if you want to be opposed to it, you better have a good argument. And we are not opposed. But um, as a cultural matter, there's this interesting thing to think about, which is like, how do you feel about bodies? Like we, um, let me back up a little. So it's like I think a lot of ethics has to do with common resources. So, um, so like for example, to me when I was a kid, one one ethical rule that I was taught is you always clean your plate when you eat. And I, I think that's becoming less of a thing because the U.S. doesn't have a problem with eating food. Uh, at least not not if you're you know middle class or upper middle class. Even then,
3: in the U.S. And we also have dishwashers that just like clean the plate that's true. for you. Yeah, yeah it like... for
1: you. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah. So it's like you know if, if 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 getting food to eat is is a scarce resource. Or, or yeah, if getting help is a scarce resource, then ethics develop around it, right? There, there are all these things that are ethical because you're you're burdening other people if you don't behave right. And so we kind of have that with bodies, I think, to an extent. Like you have to treat your body well because like we can't fix it, uh, at least with most things, or like with with serious things. Um, and so, for example, hospitals have rules about who can get an organ, and, and part of those rules have to do with are you an alcoholic? Yeah, behavior. Um, and, and
3: how reliable are you as a as a uh, as a donee? Because there's right such value that's being invested in you.
1: Exactly, exactly. And and, and, and which is a little uncomfortable because it's like, on the one hand, you don't want to go to a person with an alcohol problem and say, you don't deserve to keep living, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and and that doesn't exactly happen. But I think a lot of places have a rule that you have to have been sober for a certain amount of time for, for the simple reason that if you're going to destroy your new organ in six months, there's someone else who needs it more. And, uh, but so if you, if you imagine a future where you just print off an organ and you've got a new one in 48 hours or whatever it is, or 10 minutes, I don't know, um, there's nothing unethical happening, but it, I think it really changes the way you think about your own behavior. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, it is, again, it's a thing that's like to you and I, it it's might very be very really weird. Yeah. But then again, in like in two, or three generations, it's like, well, of course I can like in, in, ingest any substance that doesn't break my brain. And it's no big deal because I can always go and get it fixed. Um, and like I said, there's nothing I don't think ethical about it. I think it'd be unethical to say, no, you can't do this. Um, but it's it, it'll be weird for us <laughs> if it happens. It'll be weird for, we'll be the like old people being like, well, you've got to take care of your body. And it's like,
3: nah. I know. feel like that's a common theme through the book. It'll be <laughs> yeah. weird for us. The book is Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. Uh, Zach Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds.
1: Thanks for
2: having me. So I loved hearing you and Zach talk about each of these, you know, different uh, technologies. And, and it, there certainly are a lot of food for thought. And Zach has like such a way of expressing his ideas that you just, he has to be right. I mean, he just, he has such authority. But it made me wonder, like, how does he know these things?
3: So Zach's an a odd fellow. I think he won't mind me saying that. I mean, we're friends at this point, but I, early on, I, I asked him, you know, how do you do what you do? Because he has to put out a daily comic, and he does all of these other activities. And I was like, what do you do? How do you spend your time? What are your methods for doing research? And he's basically like, just reads constantly. So he's always reading. And even when I was interviewing him, I went to the to the bathroom, I came back, he was reading a book. And I was like, <laughs> for, for me, that was like, what a weird throwback. Like, and so he's a, a consummate consumer of knowledge. And Oftentimes because his wife is a is a scientist and and they're going out on book tour about this, it's the reverse. She gets asked, like, well, did she do all the research in the interviews around this? Like, what did you do? He's like, I, I read stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> and his comic has always been very science-minded. So I think he's a big consumer, but you know, we talk about this in the in the interview of how they really spent a lot of time cultivating interviewing and understanding expert positions on this and tried to reflect that through their own lens of how they communicate to the world. So basically, Zach, I I think oftentimes takes complicated topics and and thinks about it like, how am I going to fit this in six panels?
2: Yeah. And, and also, I think that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's one of his really great talents. Um, but also, I, probably doing BAFest and, and a lot of these other events has sort of helped him sort of think outside the box a little bit and look at some of these technologies as not just something that is necessarily good. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's the thing I like about it. It's sort of, you know, projecting out and saying, hey, you know, what are some of the things that we should worry about when it comes to these technologies? I
3: mean, everything is always about how science and technology is going make our lives better. And at least in a tongue-in-cheek way, Zach talked about ruining the world, but you know, we talked off air about some of those stuff and he's actually legitimately worried about some of these technologies moving forward as just being totally invasive. And I think the the best emblematic thing is talking about certain brain computer interfaces as violating our privacy. And I, that was the first time I've heard that discussion. Maybe I'm missing discussions elsewhere. But I, I thought that was fascinating. And uh, if we don't talk about how these realistically and we talk about them with a little bit of sense of humor, I think we have a better chance of a good outcome for members of the public.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, I think privacy is an outdated notion already, (laughs) but that's a topic for another episode. Uh, That's it for this episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, the technology that you think will ruin everything or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show.
3: It's called Twitter. That's the technology that's ruining everything. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Gian.
2: And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indrevis.
3: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.